know, first just in a, a tent and the back of a truck. And we spent a summer literally cooking out over the bonfire and bathing at the local swimming hall and so forth. And we had horses and a garden. My mother knew how to do everything. And so she grew food and made our clothes and made things. And my stepfather was also very self-sufficient. And basically, we all built our house over the course of that summer. Jack Straw writer Cheryl Strayed on growing up in rural Minnesota. You're listening to her interview with program curator Matt Briggs. You know, I was 12, and so I was really wanting to, uh, you know, have those lovely modern conveniences that you really want when you're a young girl. And I had this long hair, and, you know, I would wash my hair in a lake. That's what I had to do. You know, that was a struggle. And my mom would always say, you will thank me someday. We're modern pioneers. You'll thank me someday. This is character building. And um, <laughs> and I just, I never appreciated that till I was older. She was right. I'm so glad I, you know, had that experience. But even once we, you know, built our house and moved into it, and it was by no stretch, you know, a, a finished house. It was, you know, a work in progress, but at least we did have a roof. Did you have a roof by, by, by winter? By winter. by We moved into it on Halloween night, which in northern Minnesota is Arctic. It's really, truly cold by then. But we did move into our house Halloween night and then slowly built it for the next decade as we lived in it. But we didn't have running water or electricity or telephone even in that house for several years and didn't get a toilet until I had left home and gone off to college. Now you'll hear Cheryl's live reading at Jack Straw Productions. Cheryl Strayed grew up in the same region as Bob Dylan, which is upstate Minnesota, completely in the sticks. First novel, Torch, takes place in this location. Her novel follows the story of a brother and sister dealing with the sudden death of their mother, Teresa, from cancer. The novel is full of detail about rural Minnesota, and although it is natu- a naturalistic story, Cheryl writes her book with an original and, and, in my mind, often surprising style for a book that is, is realistic. She is able to balance her style with what she is writing about and shows, I think, a tremendous empathy for the so-called simple rural folk who proved not to be so simple and a family dealing with catastrophe. Cheryl Strait. Thanks to all of you for coming to listen to us all tonight. I'm thrilled to be reading to you tonight actually from my novel in progress. It's my second book. Torch, my first novel, came out almost a year and a half ago. And since then, I've probably done at least 50 or 60 readings and almost always the first chapter of the book. So it's been the same chapter over and over. And so it's really liberating to uh, be reading something new. The tentative, the working title for my novel is Sisu, which is a Finnish word. In northern Minnesota, in the town where I grew up, I, I knew a lot of people from Finland. It was almost all Finnish immigrants. And sort of the best thing you could say about someone was that they had Sisu. It means courage and determination and fortitude in the face of great difficulty. And it really is true among those people living in that community. A lot of those people have Sisu. The woman parked her little gray car where Buck used to, where no one had since he died. After a moment, she got out and began to make her way toward the house, hopscotching across the mud puddles in the driveway. Geraldine watched her through the kitchen window thinking, what now? Her heart fluttering the way it did whenever a stranger appeared. Usually, such visitors didn't actually come inside. People with questions they could ask from the porch. City people wanting to know if they could hunt in the woods behind their farm 
despite the signs Buck posted years ago that answered the question. Or locals Geraldine didn't happen to recognize immediately, wanting to buy eggs or jam, or to see if she had any beans or tomatoes ready to sell. But now it was March, spring if you looked at the calendar, still winter in Minnesota, too early for beans and tomatoes, and Geraldine could see, even from this distance, that this woman wasn't looking for produce or hunting rights. If Buck were still alive, she would have made him answer the door, though she'd have stood behind him in the dark of the front hall to hear what was said and decided, making small private sounds that only Buck could hear if she disagreed. Geraldine was shy, but curious, reserved, but strong-willed. Now that Buck was gone, she'd had to adjust. It was Geraldine who had to do the talking at the credit union now, explaining her new plans for the farm. Geraldine who had to call when the propane tank needed filling or when the hay was ready to mow. And it would be Geraldine who would have to answer the door now, she realized grimly, to talk to this woman, who she could see was pretty in an ordinary way, glossy brown hair that flicked across her smooth face and a little orange purse she wore crosswise that bumped against her slim hip. Not from here, Geraldine could tell. Something about the shape of her boots or the way she held her arms akimbo and paused before she leapt from one patch of relatively dry ground to the next. Just before Geraldine turned from the window, the woman looked up and caught her eye and waved. And Geraldine waved back reflexively, though in that same instant, she felt as if her hand had detached itself from her body, waving, while the rest of her turned to stone with the realization of who the woman was. The fact of it, came at her like a blow to the head. She had to hold the edge of the counter so she wouldn't go down. That's what she'd done when she got the call about Buck dying of a heart attack in the parking lot of the Red Owl nearly a year before. Went straight down to the floor and didn't know she was there until she stopped crying and looked around and recognized the legs of the dining room table and the fibers of her own carpet. Strange to her, up close like that. From an angle she'd rarely seen them but looking like they always had nonetheless, like everything in the world hadn't changed. She let out a small moan now and put her hand to her mouth. Outside, the woman had disappeared from view. Geraldine could hear her stepping up onto the porch. I'll be right there, she called loudly, though she didn't let go of the counter. I have three daughters, she said when people asked though she always corrected herself in her mind and thought, four. Beth, Shannon, Julie, they were the ones everyone knew about, the ones she and Buck conceived and bore and raised. But there was one before that, her secret daughter, the one now knocking on the door. Her name was Caroline Virginia, but she didn't know it. Geraldine had been forbidden by the social workers at the hospital to give her a name, but she'd done it anyway, calling her Sweet Caroline for the four days they let Geraldine hold her in her arms. And then they took her away, and Geraldine didn't know what her daughter's name was, though she'd allowed herself to believe that by some miracle her new parents had named her Caroline also, without knowing that had been her name all along. 
A doctor and his wife desperately wanted a child, she was told in a scolding way by the social worker who'd done the paperwork. After Geraldine had suggested keeping the baby. How could she, 17 and unwed, even consider such a prospect the social worker had wanted to know? And then before Geraldine had a chance to answer, the social worker pressed on. What did Geraldine have to give her daughter? How could she be so selfish to even suggest such a thing? Geraldine couldn't say what she had to give, couldn't explain why she was so selfish. Instead, she bowed her head and let her tears fall into Carolyn's blotching newborn face and said goodbye to her without speaking a word, not wanting the social worker to hear what she said. It was a different time than now, but not so terribly long ago. Forty-four years, Geraldine thought, as she walked at last from the kitchen. She didn't have to do the math. She counted each one, each August 18th as it passed. Hello? Caroline called uncertainly from the porch and gave a delicate knock. Coming, Geraldine answered, and at last took a step toward the door. She'd never allowed herself to think that Caroline would come for her, though she knew such reunions occurred, despite what she'd been promised decades before. Whenever one of those stories came on TV, Geraldine switched it off, unable to bear the expressions on their faces, the moms and their now-grown children they'd only recently met. I loved and ached for you every single day of your life, said a teary-eyed mother once, before Geraldine could get the remote to obey her frantic command. And then she couldn't get rid of that woman and what she'd said for days on end, her words hardened and twisting like a snake in Geraldine's belly. Just a moment, she called through the closed door, almost panting with fear. She jangled the knob to make it seem as if she were releasing a complicated series of locks, though in fact all she needed to do was open the door. And then it occurred to her that she didn't even have to do that. She could walk out the back door and into the barn where she could hide. She turned, trying to think what to do, then started saying a silent prayer the way she'd taken to doing since Buck died. Not praying to God the way she'd pretended to for decades in church, when instead she had been really thinking all about the things she had to do that afternoon. But this time, she prayed to her angel, Buck. It was to him that she prayed, now that she actually prayed. Buck swoops, her husband of 32 years. They'd had a good marriage, though it was true that her affection for him had become more warm and expansive now that he was dead and not able to tromp through the house without taking his wet boots off. The prayer she said to him now was a single word, chanted silently over and over again. Caroline, Caroline, Caroline. Though if in fact Buck were an angel and could actually hear her prayer, he wouldn't know who she was talking about. What are you thinking? He'd asked every now and then over the years, when a certain expression swept across her face. Nothing, she'd answer. Or other times she'd go on about the farm, the animals or the crops, or to express some worry or satisfaction with the weather. All those years, and she never said it. Caroline. Now no one will have to know, 
her mother had said afterwards in the car, on the drive back home, back from the home in Minneapolis, where she'd stayed like a secret among other unwed pregnant girls for months before giving birth. No one but us, her stepfather had agreed, and let out the tiniest chuckle. Both of them stared straight out the windshield the whole way back to Midden, not turning to so much as glance at Geraldine in the back seat. She'd gazed out the window at the dry, hot fields and the dusty tractors parked near barns and the cows that grouped lazily around them at the squat buildings of the towns they passed through, feeling half dead, thoughts of Caroline clawing the half of her that was still alive. Caroline's starfish hands, the ancient knowing of her hazy eyes, the black black of her hair. Nitchy hair, her stepfather had said on the phone when Geraldine told him, weak enough from childbirth, that she'd been unable to keep herself from joyously blurting it out loud. How Caroline looked. Ojibwe hair, Geraldine corrected him icily. Frank Plebo's hair, she wanted to shout but didn't. She and her mother and her stepfather were Finns, pale as corn. Geraldine turned back to the door and put her hand on the knob and opened it. Caroline Plebo stood smiling at her and extended her hand. I'm Rose, she said, calmly as a Jehovah's Witness, like she knocked on strangers' doors with a pleasant smile on her face every day of the week. Rose Shepherd. Geraldine took her hand and shook it awkwardly. It was warm and bony and soft as a child's. And you must be Geraldine Swoops. Geraldine nodded, unable to speak, again feeling that her knees might give out. She gripped under the edge of the door with one hand and leaned against the frame with the other. Caroline, Rose, looked to the side, and Geraldine saw a glimmer of her own face and the faces of her other daughters. The recognition came in a flash and then was gone, like something smooth and hard and precious, skittering out of reach across a frozen pond. You don't know me, Rose said and took a deep breath. I, how do I begin, she stammered. I had this all prepared, but now that I'm here, I'm really nervous, and I don't want to startle you. No, no, I know. I Was Vern Milkinen your brother? Rose asked suddenly, the two of them meeting eyes for the first time since they had seen each other through the window. This might sound strange, Rose pressed on, or come as a shock to you, but your brother, Vern, he was my father. Rose turned her eyes away and down to address Geraldine's tennis shoes instead. She crossed her arms over the front of her body and held herself tightly and spoke in a leaden way, as if reading from a script she'd rehearsed. I never met him. He and my mother were involved. Maybe you met my mother? Her name was Susan Shepard? It would have been a long time ago. It would have been, well, I'm 31, so it would have been a little more than that ago. No, said Geraldine. The words that Rose spoke were like the legs of her dining room table seen from below after she'd fallen, like the close-up fibers of her carpet. They were there, plain and familiar, and yet also entirely incomprehensible. I always meant to come, said Rose, more quietly now that she'd gotten the hardest part of her story out. And then I heard he died. She looked up at Geraldine. I'm sorry for your loss. Were you close? Yes, Geraldine answered not entirely sure what question had been asked. 
Her younger brother Vern had died six months before, only months after Buck, and of the same cause, though he died in the Blue River Hospital instead of the Red Owl parking lot. I'm very sorry, Rose repeated reverent. She looked back at her car as if she might propose getting into it and driving away now that she'd said what she had to say. Geraldine felt that she should ask her in, but couldn't just yet. She was younger than Caroline would be, Geraldine saw clearly, looking at her up close. And yet she didn't want to believe it was true that Rose was who she claimed to be. I found out only last night about him dying, I mean, Rose said, turning back to her. And then I didn't know what I was doing. I came here and I met this person at Karen's kitchen, which is how I found out about you. She looked up at Geraldine with a light dancing into her dark eyes that I found out you're my aunt. Are you sure, Geraldine asked? I mean, about Vern being your father, because he was already married to Evie by then. They have a son. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I didn't know about him being married or anything, but I'm sure he was my dad. Andrew's not much older than you, Geraldine said. She paused to think about it. He'll be 34 next month. A giddy expression came over Rose's face. I have a brother? Who'd you say your mother was? Geraldine asked. And Rose repeated her name and then continued on, explaining where she'd grown up, why she'd never come before, how it was that she knew that Vern was her father. Geraldine heard little of it. Rose's explanation was drowned out by a great clanging in her ears, her entire head numb with sorrow that Rose wasn't Caroline, that there was a Rose, and also that there was a Caroline. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2007 curator of this program is Matt Briggs. Music performed by Sheila Fox and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Proventure and Tom Stiles. Arts Programs Manager and Narrator is Van Deep. And Executive Director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.